Filthy Henry, Accidental Legend, Chapter 2. Cahill Cullen watched as another drop of water fell from the ceiling and splashed on the black plastic. As the last of the water ran down the side of the plastic, he looked up just in time to see the next drop fall. A never-ending drip, which was, he thought, a perfect comparison to his own sad little life. A series of drips. One disappointing event following another, splashing away without ever making a lasting impression. Each moment just the same as all those that had gone before, and all those which followed after. Some mornings Cottle wondered why he even got out of bed, or stood up from the floor depending on where he had fallen asleep the previous night. Are you ever going to fix that bloody ceiling? A woman asked as she entered the room. Cahill looked over at his mother and rolled his eyes. Mammy Cullen was what Cahill's American friends, if he actually had any, would have called a typical Irish mammy. She was forever dressed in a floral flower pattern dress that merely changed colour daily, with an apron perpetually tied around her waist. The apron pocket always contained a wooden spoon, something all Irish children grew up with a respectful fear of, a fear that lasted well into adulthood for most. Nothing could make a child behave faster than the threat of a red backside caused by repeated spoon slaps. Mummy Cullen walked over to the dining area, dropped Cahill's basket of washing on the ground beside the table, then slapped Cahill on the back of the head, hard enough that he could feel his teeth rattle. Ouch, he said, rubbing the area of assault. What was that for? I asked you to mind your baby brother, and you sat there while water dropped onto him, Mammy Cullen said as she lifted up the plastic baby chair, currently home to a sleeping little boy, and placed it gently down on the floor. That's what the slap was for. Also, when are you going to get your hair cut? You look like a bloody hippie with all that long hair. Cahill, brushing his hair back from his face, looked down at the sleeping child and shrugged. He didn't get wet. I just splashed his chair. Besides, what's the big deal? If he wet his nappy, then you'd just change it. Babies get wet. That's what they do, right? Plus, I like my hair like this. Mammy Cullen sat down at the battered wooden kitchen table across from Cahill and stared at him. It was a stare Cahill had been on the receiving end of many times during his life. The one that meant he was about to get a talking to the main topic always being how he had to sort his life out. While the general theme of the talk rarely changed, the life choices he had made which his mother took umbrage with did. Recently, she had decided that he needed to get a better job, because apparently, random shifts helping on various farms was not steady work. He also had to stop drinking so much that he blacked out. These points Cahill found ironic, since his ability to purchase alcohol was directly tied to his income. If he had a better job, there would be more money to spend on drink. Then there was the latest topic that had worked its way into the rotation of issues brought up during these little talks. You have to get out of this hellhole, Mummy Cullen said, looking around the dilapidated room they currently sat in. I mean, really, why are you so emotionally attached to this place? I've more reason to have sentimental feelings towards it, and I don't. It's a wreck. Cahill glanced about and tried to see what his mother was talking about, 
True, the ceiling had that drip, but that was an easy fix. In fact, the only reason it had not been repaired already was down to Cahill's amazing laziness. He made a slot look like a cheetah when it came to doing nothing. In some places, the wallpaper had started to peel back from the wall itself, but that just added character, he figured. The room was illuminated by an unshaded bulb that hung from a wire attached to the ceiling. Thrown over the sofa in the living room were various blankets and pillows, because sometimes stairs were just too hard to navigate, and Cockle found it easier just to sleep on the nearest soft surface. Then again, there had been a few nights it had just been easier to sleep on the ground, but that all depended on how much whiskey had been drunk. Mammy Cullen studied him for a moment, then let out an exasperated sigh and shook her head. You lissies, she said. Don't call me that. You know I hate that stupid tradition. That's been a tradition of the Cullen family going back generations. Your father followed it. His father before him, and his father before him. You and your brother will follow it as well. I bloody won't, Cahill said, pushing back his chair from the table and standing up. The one who can't speak can be called whatever you want, but I'm done with that crap. He walked over to the kitchen counter, lifted the kettle and started to fill it from the tap at the sink. Somewhere in the house there came a loud groan as pipes long overdue a bit of tender loving care allowed water to flow. Cahill, Mammy Cullen said, her tone changing slightly. You're only in your twenties. The whole world is open to you. You just need to get off your backside and do something with your life. Don't waste it in this hovel of a house. Maybe if you hadn't started selling off all our livestock. Cahill turned off the tap, placed the kettle down on the stove and lit one of the rings beneath it. Flames sputtered into life and took a minute part of the chill out of the kitchen. Don't bring up that stupid animal again. That's done and dusted. As for this hovel, this was Grandad's house, he said. He left it to me in his will, after none of you looked after him when he was alive. I've done something with my life already. I looked after the only person who ever thought I would amount to something. Now please leave if you don't want to have a cup of tea without giving me a speech that we both know I won't listen to. Some mothers think they always know best. Others know when it's best not to always talk. Mammy Cullen reached down and tucked the blanket around the baby. Two sugars, please, she said. And will you at least think about the haircut? Then again, some mothers always need to get one final dig in. When a man is told that he will be a father, the reaction generally breaks down into one of two types. There is the elated father-to-be. He stares at the little stick with a blue cross on it and is dumbfounded at how his life will change in new and exciting ways. Some men sit in silence as the news is told to them, while they think of all the fun that lies ahead, involving treehouses and newfangled toys. Neither of these types questions that the object of interest in their hands has just peed on them. They're too wrapped up in an overwhelming feeling of happiness. Sadly, the other sort of reaction is less enthusiastic. Some soon-to-be fathers might try and deny any biological connection to the bundle of joy due to appear in nine months. Others check their passports are in date and quickly purchase tickets to far-flung lands. In the case of Filthy Henry, he did what was required in a comedic situation. He spat out his mouthful of coffee, spewing it over the table, and stared wide-eyed at the Morai. My what now? the fairy detective said, 
wondering where he had left his passport. Over the ninety-odd years the filthy Henry had been alive, there had been dalliances with those of a female persuasion from time to time. He may have been half-human, but he was all male at the end of the day. These had been the usual encounters that everyone had during their young adult life. Only for the fairy detective and his delayed ageing process, he had enjoyed a few decades of it. In theory, he had to admit, there was a high possibility that one of these little trysts had resulted in a child being conceived. But since he had never been presented with a bundle of joy, by a stork or otherwise, he always presumed no children had appeared as a result of his activities. Now it seemed, all bets were off. The more I looked at Drew the Druid, who was currently trying to suppress the biggest laugh in history it seemed, then back at Filthy Henry. Your son, she said, we need you to go and train your son to be the champion. Are we not saying it correctly? This last part was directed to Drew, who had tears streaming down his cheeks. He snorted rather disgustingly and shook his head. No, you managed to say it perfectly. After that he lost control and started laughing as if the funniest joke in the world had been told. All semblance of composure was gone as Drew guffawed, chuckled and laughed in a serious fit of the giggles. It isn't your son, Shelley said. He's after telling her to say that to see your reaction. Filthy Henry looked from the fairy to the druid and back, then slumped in his chair and let out a sigh of relief. What in Dagda's name are you playing at? he asked the druid. Drew held up his hand, to indicate he needed a moment and tried to get his laughter back under control. Morai frowned and looked at the druid. You said he would appreciate the joke. It seems to have caused him some stress instead. Well, maybe he shouldn't steal so much from my shop then, Drew said, still tittering away to himself. Shelley shook her head and tapped on the table in front of Morai to get the fairy's attention. Morai turned back in her seat placed her hands in front of her and smiled. We are sorry. It will be the last time we trust a druid so easily, the fairy said. Ah, don't worry about it. I'll get him back for that. So this person, who's clearly not my son as it turns out, that you need trained, what's the deal? Why can't you just go and sort him out with some magic? Job done. He's unaware of his heritage, as tends to happen in these situations. The story has been around so long, Nobody alive truly believes it in anymore. Not to mention that we cannot get involved in such affairs. Merely guide others through them. And why is that? Shelley asked. Don't the rules take account of situations just like this? Drew finally stopped laughing, coughed twice and sat up straight in his seat. She's the fates. All she knows is what has happened, is happening and may happen. But it's forbidden for the Mirai to get involved in the events as they unfold. It would be an unfair advantage for one side to have. Basically, she's the embodiment of neutrality, like a fairy version of Switzerland. The fairy nodded as Drew spoke. What he says is true. We can see all that has happened before, as well as each path that could happen. If Maeve is successful in claiming the brown bull, she will gain godlike powers. Nothing will be able to stop her, and she will rule over all of Ireland subjecting the people of both the human and fairy worlds to her every little whim. She would be a dark and vengeful god. However, we are bound by the rules and cannot directly interfere, save for giving some friendly advice to try and ensure the balance is maintained. We can try to help others make the right choices, 
and thus decrease the amount of forks in the road. But why? Shelley asked. Filthy Henry drained the rest of his coffee in one go and put the cup back down on the table. He reached over to Shelley's drink and plucked free a mini marshmallow that was stuck to the rim of the glass. If she gets involved, it breaks the rules in so obvious a way. There's a risk that magic will get involved and resolve the situation. Magic? Both Drew and Shelley said together. Yep, magic, Filthy Henry said. Think of it like the universe making sure nobody's cheating. Somebody who can predict the future would have a huge advantage over those who can't. If Mariah was to try and stop the bull from being stolen, magic itself, the force of all mystical things, would make sure that whatever Mariah tried would fail. Worse, it might make it easier for Maeve to get the bull. It works both ways though. If Maeve tries to get the bull by breaking the rules, magic would step in so that she failed and it's easier to defend the animal. Although I'd technically argue that Maeve travelling through time should count as breaking the rules, but they're troublesome things to fully understand sometimes. Oh, Shelley said, clearly surprised at this statement. So, magic is alive? Yeah, in a manner of speaking. It's more like checks and balances. Think of it like a set of cosmic weighing scales rather than an all-seeing invisible deity. I often forget you're like a noob to all this. It's not like a god. Drew said with a smirk on his face. Shelley turned and gave the druid a hard stare. Listen here, you. Which one of us has actually met a god? I've met a bunch of them, in fact. So let's not pretend for a second that I'm not just as up to speed on the fairy side of things as you are. She leaned over the table and waved her right fist under the druid's nose for effect. Drew the druid focused his gaze on the fist in front of his face and gulped, his Adam's apple bobbing up and down. Okay, okay, no need to get too excited. Everyone sat in silence for a minute. Shelley slowly lowered her fist and sat back in her seat. She picked up her hot chocolate and took a long, leisurely sip while staring at Drew. Well now, that was fun, Filthy Henry said, rubbing his hands together. Close your mouth now, Drew. You don't want to expose your teeth in case it gives Shelley ideas. Mariah, tell me more about this case you need me to solve. It was definitely the oddest shaped candle she had ever seen in her life, and Maeve had seen a number of odd shaped candles. Not every candle maker in the land was good at the craft. They either did not dip the wick into the wax enough, meaning it gathered into a rough candle shape, or they dipped too much, resulting in candles that took seven strong warriors to move. The candle which stood on the table before her, however, was a hideous example of the craft. It was as if the creator had a vague idea of what a candle should look like, then allowed a dog to make it without passing on the relevant information. A candle that had started to drip long before the wick had been lit. A candle made out of disgusting brown-coloured wax. Strangely enough, this was the least horrific sight which Maeve had seen since stepping into the hovel the crone called home. The crone had led her through the forest, not really caring that Maeve had no shoes to protect her feet from the rocks and twigs on the ground, until they had eventually arrived at the squalid building. From the outside, it appeared to be just a number of wooden panels haphazardly placed among the trees. Various plants had grown around the panels holding them in place. The roof seemed to be made up from intertwined tree branches, which had all been coaxed to grow over the shack. Mud, dirt and some sort of strange coloured paste had been used to cover in any gaps. 
A small patch of wild mushrooms grew just beside the panel that acted as a front door. Overall, it looked like an abandoned hut that some hunters had left years ago. Inside was unlike anything Maeve had ever seen. Despite only being roughly eight foot wide on the outside, the interior was much larger and even had a small upstairs area. Beside the front door, there was a round window set into the wall. A window that most definitely did not exist on the exterior of the hovel. A fire burned in a pit set in the centre of the floor. A floor that was not made up completely of leaves and dirt, but cracked tiles and cobblestones. The cauldron hung over the fire, some green-grey liquid bubbling in it. Maeve had risked looking inside upon arriving in the hovel, but the bones that randomly bobbed to the surface had turned her stomach. A few feet away from the fire stood a rickety table and two equally unstable-looking wooden chairs, made from a blackened wood. She sat down on one of the chairs and leaned against the table, home to the ugliest candle Maeve had ever seen. The old crone had left her alone immediately after they arrived, disappearing down the back behind some lopsided bookshelves. Maeve shifted her seat so that it was a little closer to the fire, trying to get warm, and avoided looking at the jars on the shelves. In the shadows, something scuttled past, something that had more legs than any creature had a right to. Where have you gone to, Skoid? Maeve shouted towards the back of the hovel. Lord McGarry, came the reply. You can call me Lauren. It's a name from this time, one that allows me to move amongst the humans without raising too many questions. Maeve frowned at that statement. Lauren reappeared from the depths of the hovel with a bag in one hand. She made her way back towards Maeve, pulled out the only other seat at the rickety wooden table and sat down. The crone placed the bag on the table and slid it across to Maeve. Put those on, she said. Maeve reached into the bag and pulled out the clothes within. A jumper made from dark wool and some strangely coloured leggings of a hard material she had never seen before. Hardly the attire that a queen would wear. But in this instance, she had little choice. Not to mention that the fire, despite burning brightly and keeping the contents of the cauldron bubbling, gave off very little heat. She quickly pulled the jumper on, followed by the odd leggings. They're called jeans, Lauren said, pointing at the leggings, as Maeve fumbled with the buttons. They're common enough these days, but not exactly something you'd have seen back in your time. Maeve sat back down, glad to finally feel a little warmth return to her body. Something brushed against her feet, causing her to lift them up and place them on the seat. She wrapped her arms around her knees and looked across the table at Lauren. Okay, you need to explain exactly what's going on, Maeve said. I know I made a deal, but you're speaking in riddles. Why do you keep mentioning time, as if it's somehow relevant? Why do you have a new name? Also, why did I have to appear naked? The crone smiled, revealing very stained and crooked teeth. She hunched over the table so that her arms could be comfortably folded on its surface. Well, the naked bit of first, I guess, Lauren said. Magic sometimes responds differently to how we would expect it to. The spell surrounded you and threw you forward in time. Apparently your clothes were used to give you an extra boost. Not exactly something I had factored in when casting the spell, if I'm being truly honest. As answers went, it was probably the best Maeve was likely to get. Then again, she had very little experience actually using magic, generally relying on rogue fairies such as the crone to do spellcasting on her behalf. 
at least the reason for appearing naked in the field, had not been as a result of the crone having a poor sense of humour when it came to dealing with humans. Okay, Maeve said, quickly looking around her immediate vicinity for anything else that might scuttle by. What about the other bits then? Lauren scratched at the inside of her ear, staring at the flames on the fire. Well, it turns out that I slightly miscalculated how far I was sending you in time. You asked for the spell to kick in only at the moment of your impending death and bring you forward a week or so. Maeve nodded. Right, that boy in his magical hurdy stick. Somebody sent an arrow straight for him and he hit it out of the air and sent it towards me. Well, there was a slight mix-up with the timings, the crone said. Instead, you were shot forward a little bit more than a week. How much more? Lauren removed her finger from her ear and examined the wax under her fingernail. Fifteen hundred years, give or take a few decades on either side. Maeve felt like she had been hit by a chariot. Her plan all along had involved using a little magic as a backup plan, should the cattle raid fail miserably. The chance of dying in battle was always high, and nobody could be certain if they would walk away unharmed or not. So Maeve had made a deal with the Skoid, who liked meddling in human affairs, to ensure that her death, at least, could be avoided. A second chance to make sure she got her hands on the bull. I wouldn't think too much about it, Lauren said. Besides, what was really so great about the time you lived in? Now there are so many more wonders to behold. Most of what the humans do, you yourself would see as magic. Also, it might be a little closer to 2,000 years. But let's not dwell on that. Addition was never really one of my strong skills. It was true that Maeve's time had hardly been a thing of beauty to be lamented over. Especially for women, who toiled from the day they could walk until the day they died. Viewed as little more than the bearers of children and keepers of homes. Those few women who struck out to make a name for themselves to show they not only equalled but surpassed their male peers, rarely were treated with true respect. Men considered them to be weak, and other women shunned them as strange. Only a few schools of female warriors existed, and all were viewed as oddities rather than shining examples of what women could truly do without male aid. Queens were the rare breed of woman that managed to leave a mark on the world. She had been a queen, Queen Maeve, married to a great warrior king but she had never been content enough to simply be just a queen. Her rule needed to be absolute, a single power that governed the entire country, with no need for a male consort to pacify the peasants and other warriors. Most of her husband's army had sworn allegiance to her early on, doing her orders discreetly so the king never suspected a thing. True power though, a power that no army could really give, involved capturing the magical brown bull of Ulster a prize that now surely was beyond her grasp. It would have been really nice to have a matching set of magical bulls, Maeve said, almost to herself. Then I could have ruled like no man ever had. Well, you still can, the crone said. In fact, I don't really see how your plan has changed at all. If anything, it's been made infinitely easier by arriving at this point in time. Maeve looked at the crone with a sideways glance. How? I had a magical black bull. I needed to steal another. Then I nearly died and was brought forward in time. Two thousand years is a long time for an animal to live. Even magical ones. The crone pursed her lips and shrugged. True, she said. 
But that doesn't mean it can't happen. They had gone back to Filthy Henry's building after the manager of the coffee shop informed them that spewing beverages over the table was not acceptable customer etiquette. Nobody had really argued with him as he mopped up the fairy detective's coffee puddle with a damp cloth. Now the four of them sat in Filthy Henry's office. Well, Filthy Henry sat in his chair behind the large desk. Shelley perched precariously on the side of the desk, her notepad at the ready, and Drew and Mariah had entered the office and realised at the same time there was no more places to sit. The lack of chairs was a result of Filthy Henry's latest plan to avoid people overstaying their welcome in his office. As far as he was concerned, a client should come in, relay their sob story, hire him for a stupid amount of money, then vacate the building as fast as the fairy detective liked. Chairs made people think they could relax, sit down and have a chat. So Filthy Henry had gotten rid of any extra chairs in his office, leaving only the one large leather one behind his desk. After all, just because the clients were meant to be uncomfortable during their meetings didn't mean he had to be. So, Shelley said, her pen at the ready to start jotting down notes. What exactly is it we need to do here? Go find a champion and train him? I think we'll need a little more to go on than that. The Marai seemed to consider the question. Filthy Henry stared at the fairy creature before him. Aside from the ever-shifting nature of her appearance, there was nothing really out of the ordinary. Even looking at her with his fairy sight only gave him an interesting visual of three people in the same spot, which made sense. As each form appeared in the normal visual spectrum, the other ones could be kept in the fairy one. Yes, exactly. You need to ensure that the champion is ready to protect the brown bull of Ulster. But there are very strict rules that you all must adhere to. Both sides. Both sides? Meaning you're going to be telling Maeve to play by the rules as well? Morai nodded once. Correct. When we are through here I will be informing the emissary of Maeve about the constraints as well. Filthy Henry sat up in his chair. So the other side has a magic wielder as well. But that's good to know. I'm guessing this is some hag of an L one, who's in violation of the rules by getting involved in mortal affairs. Yes. However, until the Nask Driukta is resolved, she cannot be dealt with accordingly. Fine. Then we deal with the Skoid after we save the day. So what are these constraints? The hero is descended from Ku Cullen himself. Nobody but a true descendant can prevent the theft of the bull. You can only train and teach, but not do anything to directly stop the theft. Only a person with Ku Cullen's blood in his veins can prevent the bull from falling into Maeve's hands. If she manages to get her hands on the bull, then she will become practically unstoppable. Huh. I'll bet that would sting, Drew the Druid said. You won't be in the limelight for the change. I'd love to see how you handle that. About as well as you do with male pattern baldness, Filthy Henry said with a smirk in his face. Drew flipped the middle finger at the fairy detective. Just can it for five seconds, Shelley said, in the sort of tone that indicated further squabbling would not be tolerated. She had written down some notes in the pad Filthy Henry could see from his desk. Some of the words even had circles around them. He had yet to understand her note-taking system. When it came to solving cases, the fairy detective had always relied on his own memory for things, as it generally remembered details without any problems. 
the odd time he might draw up a list of suspects and reasons the case was going the way it was, but that was purely a mental exercise to join some dots together. Okay, this is a fairly open and shut case. We go get the hero. I cast a spell on him to make him invincible. He saves the day, and boom, we're back in time for tea. Mariah shook her head. No, you cannot aid him thus. The hero must do this on his own, just as Kukulan did. All you could do is offer guidance, support and training. Beyond that, he is on his own. If your magic is involved in helping him save the day, then everything will be out of balance. You three are here to be his unseen allies. Your magic can in no way be involved in preparing or aiding the champion. He must stop the darkness on his own, just as his ancestor did. Drew stepped forward so that he stood between Mariah and Filthy Henry's desk, turning to face the fairy. Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't help but notice that you said three. Why three? My part in all this was to get you to the fairy detective. Nice, Filthy Henry said. I've done my part. I'm not going anywhere with this thieving lowlife. I know, Drew, that's a bit harsh, the fairy detective said. Let alone get involved in one of his weird cases. Shelley looked at the druid, shocked at what he had just said. You can't be serious. You've just been told that a mad queen is looking to become a god and rule everyone if we don't get involved. Yet you're willing to let pride get in the way and prevent you from doing what's right? Drew the druid shrugged. At the end of the day, I sell junk to tourists. Saving the world is what you pair do. We have foreseen many things over our time, Mariah said. Who will win this great battle, we know not. The future is like a delicate feather adrift in the wind. All we know is that you three must be there to train the hero, in some manner, or what little hope there is shall be lost. The Dark Queen will gain power like none have ever seen before, and reign over the land forever. It's still not my problem. Filthy Henry sat upright in his seat, pulled it closer to the desk, then leaned on the wooden surface and looked at the fairy creature before him. You could use your fortune-telling powers to see a single person's life, right? Their birth, deeds, on this earth, death, that sort of thing. We can. Although, as you said earlier, your father masks you from us, filthy Henry. That is why we sought Drew's help in finding you. Certain people loved when a plan came together. Filthy Henry loved when plans not only came together, but required so little actual work on his part that they practically came about on their own. He grinned and looked at Drew the Druid, just to give the Druid's brain a little head start before uttering his fiendish scheme. Mirai, tell dear old Drew here exactly what day he'll die in the manner of his death. The fairy creature closed her eyes and turned her head so that she faced Drew. Mirai looked like she was about to speak. Woe there, Drew shouted, waving his hands in the air. He stepped towards the Mirai and, without warning, placed the fingers of his right hand into her mouth. She stopped talking, opened her eyes and looked down at him with a mixture of surprise and disgust. I'll go along with this, Drew said to her. Just keep that death stuff to yourself. Mirai reached up and pulled the druid's fingers out of her mouth, holding his hands up before her eyes for a moment before dropping it. Kindly close your eyes for a moment, she said. All of you. They did as she asked. When they opened them again, Mirai had changed to her blonde-haired form. That was the quickest way to get that revolting taste out of our mouth, she said. I would have used bleach myself, Shelley said. Now, 
Can we name this hero or champion or whatever? Also, where can we find him? He's called Cahal Cullen. You will find him in the same area that the original battle took place, the Cooley Peninsula. Where exactly we cannot say. The magic in the area lingers from the last great battle still, and prevents us from seeing everything. However, Carlingford would be a good place to start. We believe he is usually in that town. Filthy Henry frowned. Hang on a second. Normally I don't do country-based cases. So good luck with that. The Marai looked at him with her sapphire blue eyes and smiled. We may not be able to find you because of your father's magic, but once we can see with our own six eyes, we can use our future sight on you, tell you when and how you would die, if that will help sway you. Shelley, pack your bags, Filthy Henry said, jumping up from his seat and standing behind the desk. It looks like we're going to Carlingford. Filthy Henry, Accidental Legend, is a novel by Derek Power. More Filthy Henry novels are available to buy on Amazon Kindle. Narration and music by Niall Milton. To keep up to date with episodes this season, why not subscribe or like or share? We'd really appreciate it.